Amen. Well, you can sit down. What a good way to to begin this time when we look to God's Word. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be reading uh, verses 13 through 20 in in just a second. Uh, And so we are continuing our study in Hebrews. And and this morning, the, the message is holding fast to hope. And that's the point, as we'll see as we come to the passage. The, the point is for the, 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 the readers, the audience, which would include us, to hold fast to our hope. And so we do so, as we saw last week, we hold fast to our hope, even as we recognize, as we just sang, that our holding fast is contingent on him holding us. And so we, we hold fast knowing that if he's not holding us, our grip will, will surely Slip, and so we do. There's great hope that that we are safe and secure, uh, but 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 still, we need to hear the call to hold fast to persevere. And so, if if you were with us last week, or if you've been with us throughout all of, all of the study, you'll you'll recognize that the book of Hebrews um, it started all the way back in chapter five, where where this author he wants to make this comparison between Jesus and this guy named Melchizedek there's this Old Testament figure that we'll get into details next week, Lord willing. But, but at chapter 5, verse 10 or verse 11, he stopped. It's like he put on the emergency brakes before jumping into this, this argument that he's going to make about the person of Melchizedek, specifically the way that Jesus is like Melchizedek. And he, he put the brakes on his argument and said, now, now we're going to come back to this, but I've got to address you. And, and he's been addressing them in this detour all the way since chapter 5, verse 11. And last week was, was kind of the, the harshest aspect of his address, and it was a, a warning. He warned them and said, if, if you don't press on to maturity, if you don't grow up, if you don't stop being babies, then you're going to fall away, and you don't want to do that, because if you fall away, you're not coming back. And so, so that's, you can listen to last week's sermon if you want some more details there, but his point was, don't fall away, don't do it. That's, that's how the, the warning was to function. He doesn't want them to forsake Christ. That, that's been on his radar. They, they, there's this temptation. We don't know the specifics, but this, these Christians, they, they came out of a Jewish background. Their temptation is there's pressure, there's persecution, there's a cost for them following Jesus. And he's saying, don't abandon Christ. Don't forsake him. Don't give up. And so his point is to persevere. And so he finishes the warning, and now he's going to get back to his argument about Melchizedek. And, and we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 7, next week, that that's when he gets back. So, so 5.11 through the end of chapter 6 is his detour. And so this section here is the end of his detour, and it's getting back to his argument on, on Melchizedek. So this is how I describe it. It's, it's the on-ramp back to interstate Melchizedek. So I am, right? Interstate Melchizedek. And so this is, it's amazing how he transitions back to Melchizedek. And he does that in this passage. In fact, the last verse of chapter six, if you're there, he says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's where he's going. That's where he ends to set the stage for chapter seven, which Lord willing, we'll get to next week. But in getting back to there, getting back on the interstate, this on-ramp, he, he again continues his, his desire to encourage these Christians. Specifically, he wants them to, to, to wait to, for patience, to, to patiently wait. And so the, the end of the passage last week in, in chapter 6, verse 11, or, or uh, uh, yeah, there, chapter 6, verse 11, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. So he wants them to show earnestness so that they might persevere to the end. He doesn't want them to be sluggish. 
And so he says, I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's what he wants them to do. He wants them to, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. And so again, he wants them to, to, to make it to the end, to hold fast. And, and so a sentence that, that the logic at, at work in verses 11 and, and 12 of chapter 6 is a, a certain hope promotes earnestness. So, so the, the certainty of, of what's coming is what promotes or enables earnestness or steadfastness. It, it prevents sluggishness, but it provokes, promotes earnestness. And so, you know, at our house, it, it's kind of like uh, the, the certain hope of dessert promotes steadfastness through the dinner, right? So, so if you finish, here's, here's what you're going to get. And, and so our kids, no matter what, if ice cream is on the, on the end, they will persevere because they know what awaits them, right? So that's similar to what the author is doing here, but, but, but it's, it's a lot more serious and a lot more encouraging than, than ice cream could ever be because he's saying that, that, that God has made certain promises that, that sustain us here and now in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of, uh, of all that, that goes on. And so the, the bottom line that, that he wants to, the, the argument he wants to make is that if the Christian would be aided in his or her perseverance, which again, the Christian ought to be aided in his or her perseverance, he or she only needs to be reminded of the certain hope that is theirs. And so understanding the certainty of our hope is what sustains perseverance. And so he does, so he, he's going to point to Jesus and specifically his high priestly ministry on behalf of the Christian. So he wants the readers to know Jesus specifically his death, resurrection, ascension, and currently his intercession. And so because of what Jesus has done, the, the Christian has a secure and a certain hope. And so perseverance is possible because Jesus has done what he was sent to do. He's accomplished God's purposes. Specifically, he's secured an eternal salvation. And so holding fast to him is, is required and necessary because he is the means of salvation. There's no other means. And so to, to fall away from him is to fall away from the only certain thing in the midst of an uncertain world. And so we'll say more about that in a minute. But, but just at the outset, if, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you don't know what Jesus was sent to do, you don't know, don't know really anything about him, you should know that, that Jesus was sent to die and to be buried. And he rose again and ascended into heaven as a great high priest, which is, which is basically he died in your place to pay for your sin. For, for the penalties that, that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. We all have fallen. We all have, have fallen short and deserve punishment, condemnation, eternal separation, cast out of God's presence. But because of Jesus, because of what he's done, because of his death, burial, resurrection, because he is a high priest who offered himself as payment for sins, we have hope. We can know God, which is why we were created. You were created to know God. And you can never know him apart from Jesus. You can never know true hope apart from Jesus. And so, and so as we're talking, as you're listening, I want you to hear me say that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in him, you will never have hope and you will never, you'll never get through this life without Christ. And so in these verses, let, let, let's read. That's enough introduction. Let, let's read these verses. I'm going to start in verse 13 of chapter 6. I'm going to read through verse 20. So Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. The author writes, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of things, uh, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for us as as we continue. Now, Father, like like these first readers, like the, 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 the men and women, the boys and girls who first heard this letter, Lord, we recognize in us, in our own, own selves, a, a proneness to sluggishness, a, a proneness not to press on to maturity, a tendency towards spiritual stagnation or apathy. And so we just want to acknowledge here at the outset, we, we don't want that to be the case with us. We don't want to be immature. We don't want to be sluggish. We, we actually, we want, in our inner man, we, we want to grow. We want to mature. We want to be like Christ. And so I pray that you would, through this passage, that you would encourage us to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Would you encourage us to press on and to persevere? Would you remind us regularly, remind us daily of the steadfast anchor of the soul that we have in our great high priest, Jesus? And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, as we look through, there's actually, there's, there's three points that, that we'll, we'll run through in this passage. And so in verses 13 through 15, we'll, we'll see Abraham's example. Okay, so he, 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 turns, he, he turns his attention to Abraham as an example, and then he uses Abraham to, to make the second point there, verses 16 through 18, God's oath and, and how an oath functions. And then finally, he'll transition verses 19 to 20 to our anchor, which is, which is fascinating. And this is why I say it's, it's amazing how he transitions back because from Abraham to us, from beginning to end, it's a, it's a marvelous transition. And he connects us to Abraham, specifically the promised Abraham and the promise to us. And so we'll see that as we, as we look at the third point. But, but first, begin there at, at, at the first outline, the first point, verses 13 through 15, Abraham's example. Okay, so, so there in verse 13, remember his aim is to, is to point to the sure hope that's found in Christ. And so to get there, he, he begins with Abraham. So verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Okay, so, so he swears by himself saying, surely I'll bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, verse 15, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, and so as, as he begins, as he turns to Abraham, there's a clear assumption that the author makes. And that assumption is that the readers are going to have a working knowledge of Abraham's story, which certainly would have been true if, if anyone was familiar with Abraham's story, it would have been this audience. I mean, if these are Jewish Christians who have come out of Judaism, who appear to be on the verge of, of forsaking Christ and going back to the old way, who better to introduce them to than Abraham? They would have known Abraham. They would have claimed Abraham as their father. And so he turns to Abraham and so the, the, the example in Abraham's life that he points to is where he says that God swore by himself. In other words, God made an oath that he would bless and multiply Abraham. And Abraham, it says, verse 15, patiently waited. And so again, that, that, that language, that's exactly what he wants the audience to do, to patiently wait, to inherit the promise. So he turns to Abraham to persevere, to be like Abraham, and so if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, it begins all the way back in the first book of the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 12. And so in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham calls, is called by God to leave his father's house. 
And so the Lord calls Abraham and says, go get your possessions, your family, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. You're going to be a sojourner. And so you, you just get up and leave. And Abraham, verse, in chapter 12, says Abraham believed the Lord, believed God, and he set out. He took his wife and his kids, he upended everything, and he went to the land that the Lord would show him. And in verse 3 of Genesis 12, it, the Lord makes a promise. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. Okay, but that promise, Abraham, or Genesis 12, 3, that's not the event that's being referenced here. Right? That, that's the beginning, but that's not what's being referenced here. So, so fast forward, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, knowing he's going to be a blessing, knowing that God's promises require a son, looks around, him and his wife are old, they're, they're in their 90s, and Abraham says, actually, I'm not going to have a kid anytime soon. She's not going to have a kid anytime soon. God must mean that, that, that it's going to be a son who's not naturally born of us. And so Abraham pleads, Lord, let it be the, the child of one of my servants, Make them the heir. Make them the fulfillment of the promise. Uh, I, the son's not going to come from me or my wife, Sarah. So, so fulfill the promise according to my, my, one of my servants. And it's there in Genesis 15. The Lord says, no, that's not how it's going to be, Abraham. You are going to have a son who's going to be your heir. It's going to be your own son. And again, Abraham believed God and the promise that he would be blessed and have a great name. Okay, so that's Genesis 15. But that, Genesis 15, isn't the event that's being referenced here either. And so after Genesis 15, after the confirmation of the promise there in 15, Abraham then again tried to have an heir according to his own plan. So, so again, he, he now says, okay, we're definitely not having kids now. Let's, let's use Hagar, one of, my, one of my wife's servants, to fulfill the plan. Again, he's not trusting God. He, he's saying, well, well let, let's fulfill this on our own. That, that doesn't work. The, the Lord is patient with Abraham. But, but again, it's, it's clear that that's not the plan. And so then Abraham and Sarah are visited by the Lord and these two angels, and, and they're told, Sarah is going to have a son. And Sarah, when she hears that, she laughs. No way, I'm going to have a, a, a child. But God makes the promise, and lo and behold, they come to pass. Finally, from, from Genesis 12 all the way to, Gen- to, to Genesis 21, that the promise comes to pass. Sarah gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a son, and they name his son Isaac. And so they, they finally have the son. And in Isaac, we see the birth of the promised heir, the one who, who comes from Abraham himself. The promised seed finally arrives. And that, the birth of, of Isaac is there in Genesis chapter 21. And it's the following chapter, Genesis chapter 22, and the events of that chapter that are being referenced to here in Hebrews 6. Because in Genesis 22, remember this long line of events, the, the heir is finally born. Isaac finally comes in. In Genesis chapter 22, do you know what the Lord tells Abraham to do? Kill the son. Sacrifice the promised heir, the, the one that this entire promise is wrapped up in. Take him up to the mount and sacrifice him. It's there in Genesis tw- chapter 22. You can, you can read it later this afternoon. But the, at the end of the events, Abraham says, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but you've promised that, that through me, nations are going to be blessed. I'm going to have an heir. So I don't know how, how it's going to happen, but I'm going to receive this son back. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice him, and the Lord's going to bring him back. In whatever way that he, he carries it out, the promise is sure. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And so Abraham goes up the mountain, and he is going to sacrifice his own son, his only son. And of course, there, spoiler alert, the Lord intervenes, and Abraham doesn't do it. The Lord prevents him from actually carrying it out. And it's at the end of the Lord intervening, it's Genesis 15, 22. Listen to what is said. An angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, so this is after Abraham is prevented from carrying out the sacrifice, and this is what the Lord says. By myself I have sworn. You hear that language? 
By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And so that promise, Genesis 15, 22, that oath follows Abraham's willingness to offer his own son. Abraham didn't falter in his obedience. And the reason, at least according to the author of Hebrews, is because he knew that God's promise was sure, because it, the promise had, had, been, had, had carried him thus far, and finally when, that, when the son is finally born, Abraham believes it. And he persevered in the face of difficulty and doubt. And I mean, if ever there was a reason to doubt God's promise, it was Abraham before he goes up Mount Moriah. I mean, think about the situation. As he's gathering his son and he's getting materials and he, he's getting all that's needed for, for an altar and a sacrifice and his son is saying, well, what are we doing? Why, why are you getting all that? Imagine what's going through Abraham's mind. I, I can't tell him what's going to happen. I, I can't. Sure, surely it's not going to happen. Sure, surely this isn't going to come to pass. I, I mean, this is the one, right? The promise is, is offspring and, and a, a lineage. And that doesn't happen without this heir. And so I don't know why the Lord would, would, would tell me to sacrifice this one unless he had a plan, unless he's going to carry out his plan in a way that I don't understand. This is the son, the long-awaited son, through whom all the promises were going to be carried out. And all the way from Genesis 12, all the way to, to Genesis 21, through all the trials and temptations, the son had finally come, and now the Lord is asking Abraham to, to sacrifice him. And so, of course, Abraham doubted and questioned and was confused. And so the author points to Abraham because in their situation, the audience, they are having reasons to doubt and to fall away and to say, I don't know why this is happening to us. I don't know why we're facing this persecution, this stress. I don't, I don't know why all this is happening. And he wants to say, well, be like Abraham who believed God and patiently waited in the midst of doubt, in the midst of faltering. He persevered. And so the author wants them to do so just like Abraham and so Abraham did it, and he obtained the promise, verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 6 says. Now we're going to say more about that in a minute, but we simply recognize here that, that Abraham persevered. And it's his perseverance that it says he obtained the promise. And so the writer wants the readers to imitate Abraham. And so one commentator says on this, on this point, he says, the circumstances and sufferings of life suggest that God's promises are a charade that they're disconnected from reality. So, so when we're going through our life, we say, well, God's made promises. Well, they're, they're, they're useless because of what's happening in my life. Well, Abraham faced the same temptation, for he too was tempted to think that God's promises would not come true, that they were a charade, that they were disconnected from reality. And the author of Hebrews wants the, the, the readers to, like Abraham, know that they ought to continue to believe, even when their situation suggests that God's promises are false. They should patiently endure and wait on the Lord, and, and, and like Abraham, inherit the promise through perseverance. And so in Genesis chapter 22, to make the promise more convincing for Abraham's sake, it says the Lord swears by himself, which, which that, that is what, what he picks up there in verses 13 through 15. So, so, or actually, he transitions to verses 16 through 18. So look at our second point, God's oath, because that's, that's what he picks up there, this idea that God swore by himself. So look there, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so, so as, this, as this is being written, this, this is part of the cultural practice at the time. This is legal language. And, and the reason 
that verse 16 is mentioned is simply to affirm the principle behind oaths. So, so he's just said, God made an oath. Well, let me just tell you how oaths function. That's verse 16. An oath is typically, a, it's made on a greater authority than the one making an oath to say, well, it's, it's, it's sure because there's a greater authority. And so for me growing up, I remember, right, in our, in our home, it was a no-no to say, I swear to God, right? You, you shouldn't say that growing up. Now, now, I'm not affirming that, but the principle behind that is when, when, when you want, something, to, when you want something, someone to know what you're saying is true, you say, well, I swear to God. And you do that because God is greater than you. And you say, I, I'm claiming a greater authority. And, and let, on my mother's grave, sometimes people say, it's, it's, there's this greater authority to say, what I'm saying is true. Now, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and that should be enough. So we don't, we don't have the need to, to do this. We ought to be truth tellers all the time. And if we always feel the need, we have to say, well, I promise, I promise. We ought to ask, well, should, should our words be more reliable? But again, the, the principle is the same. When someone says, I swear to God or I swear by higher authority, they're affirming their commitment to the truth of whatever they're saying. And so oath is evidence. And even in that day, an oath was, was legally admissible. So it, it, could, it could function as truth in, in, a, in a legal setting. And that's what the Lord did in Genesis 15:22. He swore by himself. Now, now the reality is God can't say, I swear to God, because there's no one higher than God. God is the highest, and so he swears by himself. And he did so, verse 17, because he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that unchangeable character of his purpose. Because he wanted to, to more convincingly or, or affirm in the hearts and minds of the heirs of the promise that, that it was going to pass, that it was going to come to pass. He guaranteed it with an oath. And so he swears by himself. He doesn't do so in order to make the promise more sure. Right? When God says something, it is sure. But he makes an oath so that those who are, who are hearing the, the benefactors of the promise can say, okay, that was enough, but this affirms that God really means it. Right? God doesn't need to add to his word, but he does for the sake of the hearers to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character. Like, it's, it's, it, is, it is doubly sure. And that's why verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible to God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so, in looking at Abraham, the author says, well, God, there's two unchangeable things that guarantee his promise. And the two unchangeable things, I think, I'm pretty sure, are his promise... And then his oath. So, so the promise is enough because God can't lie. So what he promises will come to pass. But he adds another unchangeable thing just to affirm and, and confirm in the hearers. I mean, from reality's point of view, God's keeping his promise was never in, in question, but he added to the promise an oath because he wants the hearers, the heirs of the promise to understand that it's certainly going to come to pass. Now at this point, Right? It's not hard to follow. God swore by himself to Abraham after the sacrifice of, of Isaac in order to, for Abraham to have confidence. Right? So, so that's what happens in Genesis chapter 22. Right? That's the logic there. Abraham held fast to the promise. So, so after, after the Genesis 22 account, Abraham perseveres and he holds fast until the end. But, but here's the issue. Here's what, what we're coming back to. It says up in verse 15 that Abraham obtained the promise. And I read that and I think, well, well, did he? Did Abraham really obtain the promise? Now, at least partly he did. Right? He, he, he saw Isaac born. And then after the sacrifice, he then, figuratively speaking, what the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 7, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. 
So, so he did partially fulfill or obtain the promise because he saw the seed born. He was able to see Isaac grow up. He saw Isaac get married and he saw kind of the, the, these hints of, of this promise of land starting to be fulfilled, but he didn't fully obtain the promise. I mean, think about what Abraham didn't see. He, he died before Isaac had Jacob. And he died before Jacob had 12 sons. He died before Israel grew into a mighty nation and, and, and relocated to, to Egypt under Pharaoh and had great, great numbers of people. And he died before Israel was established as a great nation. Before they, they, they went into the promised land, before the temple was built, he, he didn't see any of that. So he obtained the promise, but he didn't see the promise fully realized. And so it's a bit confusing when I read verse 18 and say, well, Abraham believed in obtaining the promise. Because, here's, here's, here's why I'm a bit confused. Verse 18 says, God guaranteed the promise with an oath so that, now listen to this language, it was easy to skip over, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so I would, I would think for him to say, well, well he, he made the promise and, and confirmed it with an oath so that Abraham might have confidence to hold fast. But, but verse 18 of Hebrews 6 says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope before us. And so the promise to Abraham was made with an oath so that we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so the author is connecting the promise that God made to Abraham with the promise made to us. So he says, God did this for, in Genesis chapter 22 so that we might have reason to persevere. Do you, do you see that? How that, that's a bit confusing. Well, what, is, what does the promise to Abraham and the blessing have to do with us holding fast? Now, now, yes, we along with the first readers are to imitate the faith and patience of Abraham. Yes, that, that's certainly true, but also... The outcome of our faith and patience, the result of per our perseverance, is tied to the promise made to Abraham. So there's a connection there. The author says in verses 17 and 18 that God confirmed his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 22, in order for us to have encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So do you see the connection between Abraham and us? Well, well that, con that connection drove me crazy on Wednesday. And in fact, Will couldn't answer it either, right? We, we spent a long time on Wednesday just saying, well, well how does this relate? Well, what, what are the two unchangeable things? And how does that, how does that relate? Well, well, here's where it clicked for me. You don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, which, which we'll get to, Lord willing, not today, but in, in coming months, but in Hebrews chapter 11, there, there's, a, there's a verse at the end of chapter 11 that, that makes sense of this, this tension here, this connection, and so Hebrews chapter 11, maybe you're not familiar, it's a famous chapter, it's called the Hall of Faith. And so there's a whole litany of, of people, of God's people, who have lived lives that, that, were, that were governed by faith. They lived by faith, and there's a whole list of them. And Abraham is one of them mentioned, but he's not the only one. The whole chapter is a catalog of those who live by faith. It's like a who's who of the faithful of the Old Testament. And they're this great cloud of witnesses that, that are mentioned to encourage the Christians to hold fast. And that, that's what, what happens in chapter 12. But at the end of chapter 11, th this is what it says in verses 39 and 40. Listen to what it said about the group of faithful men and women throughout the Old Testament that are listed. He gets to the end of the catalog of faith. In verse 39 of chapter 11, he says, And all of these, this whole list, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Here's why. Since 
God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you see the connection there? Do you you see what he's saying? The promises of God, the the certain and sure promises that sustain generation after generation after generation were all leading to something. The, The promises were all leading to the author of Hebrews says, us. The Old Testament saints, they never fully realized the promise because God had promised, provided something better for us. In other words, the promise was never fully realized until the time of now. And the something better, the perfection of the promises, in the author's mind, as we'll see as he works this out, is, is the coming of Christ. And so Abraham never fully realized the promise until Jesus came. The, that promise and the next promise and the next promise, they're all looking forward to the revelation of the Son, to, to the coming of Christ. And so for all those listed in Hebrews 11, the completion or the fulfillment of God's promises were all yet to come. It was all, they were all forward-looking. But for us as well as for the readers of Hebrew, the Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, the fulfillment is not yet to come anymore. It's looking back. It has come. It's not yet to come anymore. It has been, it has been fully realized. All the promises have been fully realized in Christ. All of God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus was the point. He was always the main idea. He was always the seed of Abraham. It wasn't ever Isaac or Jacob or Israel. It was always Jesus. And so the point of of the author of Hebrews in 6.18 is that God's sure oath-sealed promise to Abraham is for our benefit too. The promise made to Abraham that was sure and certain has come to pass in the revealing of the Son, in the coming of Jesus. Jesus has come and has fulfilled all of God's promises, specifically securing eternal blessings for the Son. An eternal salvation that Jesus has come, the Son has accomplished God's plan. A plan that was in seed form all the way back in Genesis 12, which we could actually go all the way back to Genesis 3 and say that the promise was in seed form then too. But the story of, of all the Bible is God's promise being fulfilled. And that's crucial for understanding the, the, the big picture of the story of the Bible, but, it, but it's also crucial for understanding the logic of Hebrews 6. God has accomplished his promise. And so when he says to Abraham, I'm going to bring it to pass, the Christians say, yes, the coming of Jesus affirms that what he promised has come to pass. So we can hold fast to our, to our hope. And, and that, was, that was really helpful for me to, to see that connection. Now, it may not be for you. That's fine. But it really was for me. But there's even more. Dare I say, it got even better for me. So, so stay with me. So, so remember the whole point of, of, of Hebrews chapter 6. Remember the transition, right? We're, we're on the on-ramp. We're going to interstate Melchizedek. Right? And on the interstate, we, we, want to, we want to encourage the people. Well, well, wouldn't it be just amazing if there was a place where God made a promise and an oath, not only to Abraham, but, but if he made a promise and an oath regarding the, the high priestly ministry of Melchizedek, wouldn't that just be awesome and be a great way to transition back to Melchizedek? Well, there is, and we've actually read it already in Hebrews. The reason the author of Hebrews uses Abraham and the reason that he promises, that he mentions, that he mentions God's unchangeable promise and oath, this two-pronged thing regarding the promise of Abraham, is because there's also a promise and an oath regarding, not just the promise of Abraham, but regarding Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And so that's how he transitions back to Melchizedek. He says, hey, remember a promise, an oath made to Abram about the promises? Yeah, you, you should bank on those. And, you, and, and the promise of Abram has been fulfilled. But, but even more so, there was a promise and an oath made about the, the, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus himself, which is even more reason for you to hold fast. And so all the way back in chapter five, before, before he took this detour, he was talking about Jesus as the high priest. And, and you can look back there, you can just write this down. But in Hebrews 5, Verse five, chapter five, verse five, he says, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, quote, you're my son today, I've begotten you. That's one, one Old Testament quote. As he also says in another place, listen to this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so it's the second quote there where, where the author of Hebrews back in chapter five is quoting Psalm 110. And he quotes Psalm, Psalm 110 in order to show that Jesus was appointed the high priest. That he became high priest, not because he did it himself or he said, I'm going to do this, but because God appointed him that. And if you go back and read Psalm 110, verse 4, listen to the language. The author doesn't quote this at length, I think, because he's saving this punchline for, for here in chapter 6. But if you read back, Psalm 110, verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So to hear that language there. The Lord has sworn. That's the same language that we heard regarding Abraham. The Lord has made an oath. But this oath, it's not blessing and multiplying Abraham. This oath is that Jesus is high priest. And he's high priest forever. Eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which means that Christ's function as high priest now and forever is sure and certain, unchangeable, set in eternal stone because God declared it with an oath. He promised it and then affirmed it with an oath. And which is the same logic that he used in regards to Abraham. And so that's, that's the exact point that the author of Hebrews wants to encourage his readers with. He doesn't want them to abandon Christ. He doesn't want them to fall away, to forsake him. He doesn't want them to do that because Christ is the eternal high priest. He's never going to not be serving in that capacity. He has been declared as such by the oath of God the Father. He's never not going to be the high priest interceding for his people. Right? This is one reason I think his, his, his scars are visible in his resurrection body. We will never not know Jesus as the lamb who was slain. We will never not know him as the one by whom we are saved and have eternal bliss and glory with the Father. And so he wants the readers to know, verse 18 of Hebrews 6, he wants us to know that in turning to Christ, we who have fled for refuge, which, which I think the implicit thing is those who have fled to Jesus for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, that's the whole reason that he takes this detour as he, as he goes back onto Melchizedek. There's certainty in the high priesthood, high priestly ministry of Jesus. There's certainty in the ministry of Jesus on behalf of his people. There's to be strong encouragement. Jesus is interceding for his people. It's happening. It's a reality. And so his people here on earth, though we don't see that happening, we know it's happening. And we can persevere and hold fast because that hope has been set before us. And that's, that's in, that, that he further emphasizes that hope, the reason for the encouragement in verses 19 through 20. Look at the last two verses of our passage. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And so as he ends this transition, he wants the readers to know, he wants us to know that because Jesus has been declared and made high priest forever, because he's entered into the true holy of holies, of which the earthly holy of holies was just a shadow, just a pointer, Jesus has entered into the true holy of holies, made not by human hands, because Jesus is there, because Jesus has, has offered himself as the spotless lamb, as, as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, because Jesus has, has now been raised and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the majesty of, on high. Because of all these things, the, writers, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we can have hope. We can persevere. Right? There, there are certainties, things that have been set that are much more firm than anything we experience here and now. We can persevere. All these things have taken place. Jesus has died once for all for sins, never again to be offered again. And so for us to forsake Christ, to fall away, we're waiting for a salvation that's never going to come. It's come. Jesus has made the way. And our hope, our Christian hope and reason for perseverance is tied to the high priestly ministry of Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews is focusing on this high priestly ministry. The main argument of the book is Jesus is the greater high priest because he wants us to persevere. And what better way to persevere than recognizing we have someone who is interceding for us, who has our back up in heaven, who has died for us. And so the reality of the place of Jesus as high priest in the eternal, the real holy of holies, is the focus of these verses 19 and 20 and the reason that we have hope and can persevere. We have an anchor for the soul, an anchor of the soul. This imagery, this is, it's nautical imagery, but, but the picture is not hard to get. It's, it's safety and security. We have an anchor. Our souls have an anchor in the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Right? The reason for this hope is that we have a high priest. We, we don't have to look somewhere else. And this high priest, this anchor goes into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, now if, if you're not Jewish, you don't, you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's like, well, what does that mean? You don't understand that. But the reality was before, the, under the Old Covenant, the, the, the inner place was entered into once a year by one person. And, and that, that represented the, the access for the people, but it was limited and it was very sparse for anyone to have access into God's presence because it was where God dwelt. And he had to go and he had to offer sacrifice for sins, for his own sins and for the sins of his people. And then only then could he, could he have access into God's holy presence. But in the new covenant, what Jesus has done, the result of his work, the, the author of Hebrews says, we have a hope that goes into the holy place and it actually stays there and will stay there forever. The, 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 the day of atonement's not going to end. The, the time of the priest in our behalf, in the holy of holies, he's not going to have to come out again. He's there and with him, we have access there. And so because of the, the, the priestly ministry of Jesus, we have access into God's very presence. We can live there. And so, so when he says, let us approach boldly the throne of grace, there aren't an open and closed hours for the throne of grace. We approach it in our time of need, and we receive help in our time of need because Jesus dwells there as our high priest. COVID can't shut that down. We have access into the very presence of God solely because of our high priest and his work. And so it's in him, it's, it's looking to him, it's holding fast to him, it's persevering in our confidence in him that we have a sure and certain hope. And so the hope for the believer is that, that Jesus is interceding for us, that he has died for us, 
And his blood speaks a, a better word for us than any other blood could ever speak for us. It's, it, our hope isn't that we, we can keep ourselves. Our hope isn't that we've earned the right into access with God. We haven't earned the forgiveness of sins. We have a certain hope because of Jesus, specifically because of his work on the cross and his high priestly ministry, which is what the author in chapter 7 is going to just embark into this long journey showing the superiority of this ministry that Jesus now has as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he concludes this section calling the readers and, and, and calling us to patience like Abraham because the promise is sure. We can persevere. We can patiently wait because the promise is sure. We have hope, and that hope is tied to the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so, Lord, we'll, we'll pick that up next week. But let me just close with, with two, two words of, of encouragement or application. First, that there is sure hope for the believer. I mean, we, brother or sister, we have an anchor for our soul, and that anchor is the sure and certain hope that Jesus has provided. And so this is, this is good news. Everyone needs hope, right? Our world is hope-starved right now, and, and believers are not, are, not, are not freed from that temptation of, of hopelessness. The work of Jesus, the, the ministry of Jesus gives us hope, and it is a sure and a certain hope. And the good news of the passage is, is that the one trust in Christ, you have access to God. You have access to the presence of God. He is with you. You have your sins forgiven. You are no longer hindered from, from having a relationship with the God who made you. you. You've been reconciled to him through the work of Jesus. You have a great high priest. You, you're not going to ever have to give an account. You're never going to have to pay for your sins. They've been paid for by the high priest. Your possession of all of this can never be taken from you. No life circumstance, no tragedy, no, no pandemic, nothing can rob you of this. You have a sure hope that, that has gone into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. And when Jesus is there with your anchor, it's never, it's never leaving. And so if you're not here, as I mentioned earlier, if, if you don't have hope, if you want hope, your hope is in Jesus alone. Right? No, no matter what you experience here in this life, here and now, you're going to face you know, the day's going to come when you, when you have to give an account for your failings to love God and your neighbor as you ought, as you were created to do. You're going to have to give an account for, for, for every idle word, for, for your failure to love God perfectly and, and to be kind and to not, to not get angry. And you're, you're going you're to stand before the holy maker. He's going to say, what, what have you to say for yourself? And if left to ourselves, we will be consumed by a fire. We can't stand. But the good news, the reason that, that I have confidence, that I, I have confidence in that day is because it's not anything that I've done. It's that Jesus died for me. It's that, it's that he, he gave his life once and for all so that I might be confident and I'm accepted not by what I have done, but what Jesus has done. And so redeeming love ha has been my theme from day one and it will be until I die. Right? And so in heaven, we will still praise the lamb who was slain. Right? That, that's the picture in heaven in Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. And so our hope is in Christ. And so, and so if you're not a Christian, I, I would implore you this day to, to look to Jesus. Because apart from him, you have no payment for sin. You have no access to God. You have no sustained reason for hope. But for the believer, you have great reason for hope. Then the last word of encouragement, the last word of application would be we have patience in waiting. 
Another point to be made from this passage, not only the hope of, of the promises of God, but also the ability to patiently wait for those promises to fully come to pass. Because yes, they've been, the promises are yes and amen in Jesus, but, but, but we're, not, we're not totally fully there yet. Right? So, so we're still waiting in the sense that Abraham had, was waiting for Jesus to come. Now, now we're in kind of a, a waiting period for, for the return of Jesus, for the full uh, uh, fulfillment of the promise for the full realization of God's end time salvation. So we're still waiting, but we have, we have reason to wait with patience and hope because God has promised it. If God's promises were not sure, if there, if there were no hope in the time in between the promise and the fulfillment, then surely we should and, and could despair. But, but there is reason for hope because God's promise has, has been God's word has declared it and his oath has affirmed it. And so we have reason for hope. The logic of this passage is that hope does exist. And so hope is sure and certain, which means we we can wait patiently knowing that it's coming to pass. We're, We're still longing for that day, but we know that it's going to come. It's not just wishful thinking, well, I hope it happens. No, when God has promised something, we know that it it will come to pass and we can wait patiently. And so our posture as we wait, as we experience hardship or difficulty or pressure to abandon Christ, our posture towards God is one of confidence. We don't fall back questioning, well, actually, maybe, maybe this is all for naught. No, when God has declared it, we wait with confidence. Even in the midst of uncertainty, we trust God because he has promised. And so, and so I want to end. Here, here's an, a lengthy quote from a pastor about, about uh, learning patience as the Christian. I think this is a good, good thing to end on, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. As we, as we conclude. But, but here's what, what this, this one, one, one pastor says, quote, waiting is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. Marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. There are hours of perplexity when the most willing spirit, anxiously desirous to serve the Lord, knows not what part to take. Then what shall it do? vex itself by despair, fly back into cowardice, turn to the right hand in fear or rush forward in presumption? No, simply wait, but wait in faith. Express your unstaggering confidence in him for unfaithful, untrusting waiting is but an insult to the Lord. Believe that if he keep you tarrying even until midnight, yet he will come at the right time. The vision shall come and shall not tarry. Wait in quiet patience, not rebelling because you're under the affliction, but blessing God for it. Never murmur against the second cause as the children of Israel did against it. As, put, as, the Israel, as Israel did against Moses, never wish you could go back to the world again, but accept the case as it is and put it as it stands, simply and with your whole heart, without any self-will into the hand of your covenant God, saying, now, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. I know not what to do. I'm brought to extremities, but I will wait until thou shalt cleave the floods or drive back my foes. I will wait if thou keeping me many a day, for my heart is fixed upon thee alone, O God, and my spirit waiteth for thee in the full conviction that thou wilt yet be my joy and my salvation, my refuge in my strong tower. That, that, that's the Christian posture. We, we wait in hope for the Lord. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. This is our lot as Christians in the world. May we learn to wait patiently until we, the day, we fully obtain the promise and dwell with the Lord and his people forever. That, that's what we're waiting for, and that's what's coming. And so we wait with patience. Let, let me pray for us.